You're listening to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. This week, we begin the episode with the directors of a fearless new comedy, The Beta Test. And then we pick up our conversation from last week with the unstoppable Bruce Bennett. But first, The Beta Test. It's a movie I like to think of as a comedy of panic. It's about a Hollywood agent who's basically cracking up. And things only get worse when he receives a purple letter that arranges a secret sexual rendezvous. Jim Cummings plays the agent who spews a steady stream of ridiculous double talk in a Hollywood world that's based on actual interviews with agents and assistants. I talked with Cummings and his co-director and co-writer P.J. McCabe about the movie. It screens in this year's Tribeca Film Festival and comes out in November from IFC Films. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. For this episode, I'm very pleased to have the directors and co-writers and co-stars of The Beta Test, and that's Jim Cummings and PJ McCabe. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. This movie, it has such a giddy energy to it, uh, so I just, I really loved watching it because I didn't know what was going to happen next. Uh, I mean, of course, the giddiness kind of turns a little darker, you know, as, as, it, as it goes on. Yeah. In the writing process, we do everything out loud, and we're just, you know, comedians. We, like, want to make it funny. And so, like, Uncut Gems was our favorite movie of last year, and uh, so much of the writing process was, like, that it was like you know how do we add more stress to this guy's life and uh, <laughs> see him like juggling ten spinning plates in a as a comedy like as a kind of out and out comedy and it works it's funny it's like we, we our screenwriting process I've listened to your podcast before and it seems like it's like incredibly uh, film centered I don't know why you're talking to us we like <laughs> don't know what we're doing but we know that in reading a script if it's just constantly stressful and interesting the audience will follow along and um, and it does have this big payoff at the end, which is very fulfilling, I guess. Yeah. I mean, just kind of getting this guy's head and seeing all of his different stressors of different parts of his life bleed into each other was very funny to us. So, you know, he, he he's arguing with someone about something else and then something about his marriage slips in completely <laughs> ridiculously. And it was just funny yeah. to us to have those bleed over into each other. Yeah. I mean, it, at any given time, he's, he's dealing with both just the, the craziness of being an agent of like performing an agent, you know, and, and then also with his, his imminent wedding. Um, I mean, I started thinking of it as like a comedy of panic. I don't, I don't know if that sounds right. That's, that's perfect. perfect. I've never heard <laughs> yeah. that term before. Perfect. Yeah. Again, yeah. new filmmakers. I've never heard that term before, but yeah. that, is, that is the perfect term. We're going to use that. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Comedy of panic. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's actually hard. I was thinking about you know in comedy, it's 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 hard to get across that that the kind of anxiety and panic. And do you have any like comedies that you you look to? I, I guess you mentioned Uncut Gems, which weirdly I actually just watched as, as well. So I totally see the energy there. I mean, I almost thought of like Jack Lemon or something. Oh, you, you poor thing. That is a, <laughs> a stressful movie. Um, we we really love um, yeah Jack Lemon. A, a lot of old Jack Lemon stuff is like the comedy is him being put into awkward scenarios alan partridge we're huge fans of alan is like one of our heroes steve has become a buddy now um but that kind of forensic comedy of um how much stress can we put this guy through on live television um or on the radio is like it, it just raises the stakes so much and yeah we we love all of his work yeah I mean, yeah, yeah. people who feel like they need to be on all the time and are expected to perform yeah. and think they need to be and just aren't good at it. 
Well, and, and Armando Yanucci, I guess, you know, and something like, and yeah. Veep, you know, that kind of, that you see the terror in the eyes, but they're just going to keep going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think it's this really like incredibly bizarre, inhuman uh, thing that we ask of people in America, but maybe all over the world of like, you have to put on the facade of being whatever your job is instead of being a human being. And yeah. I, I don't know any industry, maybe politics, but in Hollywood, it is incredibly pervasive and toxic. And so many times when we were interviewing agents and assistants and ex-agents and ex-assistants, they were like, well, yeah, I was working with my boss until he had that mental breakdown. And then, yeah, he's no longer in the film industry. It's like, hold on, well, what yeah. did you just say? And it, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 yeah, it was like, yeah, yeah. Before, before the murder-suicide. It, yeah. um, it, it was a great job to have. It's like, oh, my God. Like, he just really, this? he seemed like he really had it together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just think that's so funny and terrifying and um, and just interesting to watch where the audience is in on the joke of like, oh, this guy is, you know, shambles. This guy has no idea what he's doing and is pretending so much. And so when he fails, the audience is like, yeah, stop lying. Like, you just want him to stop lying the whole time. It's great. Yeah. Just take a breath. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, yeah. be yourself. Just be, be yourself. Be just honest. Be honest. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe there were some stories that you'd heard or, or like experiences with agents as well? Yeah, we had we had 11 agents, assistants, ex-agents and ex-assistants talk to us, give us testimony in cafes and restaurants all over L.A., and then documents and voicemails and all kinds of really interesting <laughs> stuff. The, the weird thing was we, we set it up as like, hey, we're making this movie about the agency world and the WGA packaging fight. We want to get it as realistic as possible. And most of the people in that world were like, oh, you have no idea how bad it is. Like, let me tell you this story. And so a lot of it, there are two people who are just leakers. And then like the other ones were just people who were <laughs> like, oh, I want to tell you how terrible and toxic this work environment is, particularly for women. Uh -huh. um, and so that that uh -huh. testimony of uh, of one of the assistants is actually verbatim in the movie of me shouting at Jacqueline. So like we used it, and it's from uh, an agent at one of the top four agencies in Hollywood, uh, almost verbatim. So it's possible that the person sees the movie and it's like, why does that sound familiar? <laughs> and then we were talking to the the source, and uh, and they said, oh, he'll never remember. He'll never remember that he shouted that. And like that's part of the problem. Like these people are just you know ghosts of yeah. human beings that are just mean-spirited just anyway. autopilot of aggressiveness and anger <laughs> yeah know, constantly yeah but he'll, he'll probably see it and he's like yes yes that's how you do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just stands up just stands up and starts clapping bravo yeah yeah that's I, how you run an office yeah, yeah. yeah. runs a tight ship over there i appreciate that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it because it really has. There's this detail in it that I really couldn't remember from any movie. You know, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned Entourage. I haven't really seen a lot of Entourage. I actually thought of the agent. Do you remember Larry Sanders' show? Yeah, of course. And 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 the agent he plays there. It, that kind of I thought of that where a guy who's just like will say and do anything. And in this in the show, Larry Sanders is he's like ah, I don't know about this. And then he looks at the number and he's like, all right, yeah. people make that <laughs> bargain, that devil's bargain. Yeah, um, it's a funny thing. There aren't many big agent pieces of media. Entourage is probably the biggest one. And Entourage, they tried to make it seem as cool as possible. And we were like, it's not cool. I don't think yeah. that, like, like, like the main thing that anybody knows about Hollywood these days is that it is not cool. And uh, <laughs> we wanted to show how not cool it could be. Um, <laughs> but you're right. It's like, it's like Entourage, The Player, 
Um, there's a movie from the early 2000s that was shot digitally that's about kind of like a, a, the greasy side of an agency um, war. Mm. But like there, there hasn't been many. And I think it's because yeah. people are intimidated. I think it's like a power dynamic mm-hmm. thing of like, if you're going to make a, a thing about this subject, you better not make fun of us. Um, and we were like, all right, well, we're independent. Like, what are we going right. to get into trouble? You know? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It, yeah. It's funny that like, it is rare to see it on the screen, but even though it's so, you know, ubiquitous in our town. Yeah. No, I mean, this is, that's what makes it, you know, for me, a truly independent movie. I mean, in that it really goes for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know more about how you write a screenplay like this, because a lot of it's about rhythm. And I remember reading about uh, Thunder Road that you you kind of act out things when you're working out a screenplay. It's just an initially. So I'm curious, like what the writing process was and also how you kind of nail the rhythm, because it's really just like off kilter in this great way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we honestly, uh, for every screenplay we write, I mean, we get up and we we do it. We live it. I mean, we literally will just run around a room yelling at each other for hours, uh, <laughs> scaring our neighbors and uh, being annoying to anyone in the area. Uh, yeah. And then what? And we just write everything down what works. I mean, you, we're very lucky. We both come from acting backgrounds as well. And so to just get up and live the scene is extremely helpful because you get you get a rhythm, uh, especially, you know, acting t- together and a lot of the stuff that we, we do. And yeah. And so you, you make something that eventually connects and works and, write and it's, it down. Yeah. it's all out loud. So, so yeah. we have, we use a program called writer duet where it's like Google docs where you can yeah. see somebody writing in real time, but it's in screenplay format. So like there'll be times when we'll be acting out a scene or we'll kind of like throw it back and forth. And the whole time it's acting, it's just us doing the bits and trying to make the joke work. And like, if the punchline works in the room and like PJ laughs, I'm like, cool, that's going yeah. in. And then like, we'll, we'll put it into the script. And so it's a really fun kind of playful way that we do it. And then PJ and I are both Redditors and like huge fans of David Fincher. And so like we understand Mm. the kind of detective pornography that needs to be the engine of a movie. And so a lot of the story is kind of built around that. The first draft is generally just like plot of like, this is Mm -hmm. each scene and this is where it goes. And then when we go in, we get to like do it out loud a bunch. We're like, what if we do that? Like, what if we insert this stupid bullshit in too? It'll be really funny. Um, (laughs) What if we make the movie about face sitting? What if we, uh, you know, all of that yeah. kind of stuff? We always um, say it's goofy Chinatown. It's like, yeah. <laughs> like we love amazing detective stories. So what if we do a detective story that, you know, has With way too much detail, but, but is really funny. <laughs> like just like way too much thought yeah. into this ridiculous detective narrative. Chinatown <laughs> about a, an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who has to get better at detecting yeah. along the way. Yeah, I think that's another thing. Like, the movie's about representation. It's about a guy whose entire job is to represent people, and he's a terrible job of representing himself, you know? (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's really, yeah, that's the thing. Like, every, every scene, you know, you see him trying to, like, apply some playbook of like, how do I take control of the boat? How do I take control, you know? And it's great because you do it just one after another. So it, it's really f- funny. Yeah, it's learning tactics along the way. He's yeah, employing different ways of getting good at lying and getting what he wants. And, that was really yeah. important to me to kind of like have anybody who's an independent film. I'm, you know, a big supporter of independent filmmakers and independent film in general. But like the amount of bullshit that you can go through in the town and you never know if someone's lying to you or not or just doesn't really care we wanted the movie to kind of be this 
bullshit reset button of like you shouldn't listen to anybody when they say they're excited about anything it's like that's just a throwaway phrase so he said about a thousand times in the movie that's dead air talk yeah, yeah. it's it, yeah it's just it's bullshit yeah. and so like we, we hope that by watching the film young people will see it and be like oh I, this is what an agent is. Or like, I don't have to participate in this. I can completely circumvent it in the way that we made this movie. The whole movie was crowdfunded and like anybody can do oh. that. It's uh, it really is the future. And, you know, Hollywood is kind of on shaky ground because of it. It's not funny. I mean, that's like a fucked up thing. People it's, are losing their it's jobs. It's frustrating. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Um, but the whole time we were like hoping that by watching this guy freak out and uh, try to use these tactics of coercion and them not working, uh, that it's okay that they don't work and you can ignore the guy. <laughs> and then, there, you know, there's kind of like a, there's kind of a poignancy to it as well, because obviously he has this relationship with loving fiance who clearly is used to him, has a lot of patience. Um, I just want like, to shout, just a shout out to you know Virginia Newcomb's performance. You know, For if sure. you see her go through the whole movie and then the like kind of last couple acts, just just terrific, the steely nerves. You know, um, how did you cast her? So we're good friends. We met her through Daniel Scheinert, who um, made the death of Dick Long that she is one of the actors in. And we were tempted to cast her in my werewolf movie. And so we were like talking to her about maybe playing Ricky Lindholm's part in the film. And she did an amazing audition. And she's so that type of like Southern tomboy in real life. And then she came into the offices for this one. And we kind of knew that it was going to be her. I was like, I would love to work with this person. And then... Uh, she came in and hung out with us for an afternoon and then she left and PJ was like, oh my God, like absolutely, she's going to kill it. And then she was just, I mean, she's unbelievable. Like she is so earnest and sad. And then mm-hmm. by the end of the film, the movie becomes about her. And so she has to carry the last third of the movie basically. And then like the f- terrifying sex fight scene that we have, yeah. it's like, you're <laughs> like, what is going on with this, with this relationship? It's hilarious and bizarre and terrifying. And she's so tragic and, and she's the only honest person in the movie until she's not. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's great. It's, it's like a nice little twist for the audience. She was amazing. She's yeah. one of our favorite actors. She just got it. She understood the power dynamic. Uh, yeah, the whole dishonesty through line uh, coming from her standpoint. Yeah, it, it was just really important that, yeah, she understood what her character was going through. And, it kind and, of brought her own to And it. she yeah. is beautiful and terrifying in the film and in real life. She is so <laughs> intimidating in how talented she is. Yeah. Um, it was it's yeah, a pleasure. We were very, very lucky. Yeah, she was awesome. Yeah, she's she's great. This kind of base of, of realness uh, around all this, around the chaos, to kind of, chaos. To kind of the chaos of the film. Yeah, in a very lovely way. I want to ask a bit about you know you mentioned the kind of plot mechanics and Fincheresque kind of plot mechanics. What was the inspiration for this purple envelope? I won't say more about it, uh, but this purple yeah. envelope system. Sure. So for the audience, the the movie's about uh, this guy who's an agent, but that's, yeah, I guess like it's not really about agency stuff. It's It's about, it's about this guy who gets a letter in the mail inviting him to a no strings attached sexual encounter in a hotel room from an admirer. And uh, he gets this thing and there's an RSVP card with a bunch of crass stuff on it. (laughs) And he hides it from his fiance. And then he, he goes and it's wonderful, but then he never gets another letter and it starts to drive him nuts. Um, of like who actually did it. So it's like this kind of like perfect thing of like, if you could be adulterous and completely get away with it, 
it would still be awful because you would you would be questioning what the hell was that you know um it's like getting the ultimate spam letter and it's actually is too good to be true yeah <laughs> yeah it'd be like getting a spam letter or like a dm on instagram yeah. and then you show up at the hotel room and like a smoke show guy or girl is there and, and it's, it's actually like, what it promises <laughs> and what would you actually do yeah. after that so it was kind of <laughs> like that where like pj and i you know we're both in serious relationships pj's married i'm engaged and uh we were doing this thing about like stress and then like you know looking back and wishing you had sowed your wild oats or whatever that is like whatever dudes go through you know before they get married and we wanted to do that as a horror movie of like rosemary's baby is about part of and postpartum depression and it was like oh we should make something about this time period of like you know a guy who is like you know horny <laughs> and, then, uh, <laughs> and then it was just kind of funny it was like we in our in our lives it was like well would you do this and then pj was like fuck no wow. i get murdered yeah. like you'd show up at this hotel room you get killed <laughs> And then, and then I was like, okay, well, what if you were somebody that was like that? What if you were this kind of dishonest person? And then that just became, you know, doubt is perfect because doubt is set in um, a church and it's about believing in something without evidence. And we wanted to make something about dishonesty. So we had to set it at the Hollywood talent agency. So it was kind of this like perfect thing that just then became the movie. And um, like, what kind of person would it take to actually yeah. go through with something like that, with that kind of an invitation? <laughs> so, yeah. And so we built Jordan Hines yeah. out of that prospect yeah. to tell this ridiculous story. And I mean, it kind of unleashes part of the movie is like a comedy of panic. And then part of it's just like a comedy of like sexual paranoia, sure, like a paranoia about his own urges and a paranoia about then everyone as well. And what will happen? Oh, sure. We're, I'm a huge fan of um, Pietro Jeremy's work, you know, who did uh, Divorce Italian Style and Seduced and Abandoned. Seduced and Abandoned is one of my favorite mm -hmm. movies of all time. Yeah. Um, but so much of that is about like the com comedy of shame as well. Just like. Oh, something! Somebody's gonna find out about me, and like I've got to cover it up. And like, uh, right. and there's so many great montages in his movies where it just showcases that perfectly. And some of our movies, like stealing directly from Italian comedies from the 1950s. And that was one of the biggest stressors, knowing you did something ridiculous, and now right. you have to try to cover it up for the whole movie. Well, just talking about montages, um, let's talk a bit about the look of the movie. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about what your vision for the for the visual style of, of the movie was. You know, you start with this really bold, almost like, I'll just say a Giallo-like scene in the beginning. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Giallo is like a huge inspiration to us throughout the pre-production. And like we were, we were listening to the soundtracks of all these Giallo movies of like the, you know, the Red Queen kills seven times, like all of these dope fucking uh, Bruno <laughs> Nicolai scores. And initially, yeah. when we were doing the podcast of the screenplay, we always make a podcast of the screenplay to kind of like, you know, see if it works tonally and find out what to cut and add music and sound design and stuff like that. Um, it was always these like spooky, you know, 1960s Italian horror like movies. Weird spooky. Yeah. yeah it's... And, and, there, and that shows in the movie, there's a couple of, actually, because of the music licensing that we got, we had a library of all this music. So there's there's a couple Bruno Nicolai songs that are sampled in the oh, movie. Oh, wow. We really were lucky enough to get that. But that kind of like spooky harpsichord of like when I'm remembering what my assistant says to me and I'm working out. And then it's like the harpsichord comes in and it's like, Ping! and it's like very giallo inspired. Um, yeah. yeah, no. And then throughout like the, the pre-production we were watching, I mean, obviously David Fincher is like a huge inspiration of like the, how the camera moves, how to like do these spooky uh, conversations and like how somebody says something and then it's a B where it's like somebody says something you, you cut to the next person reacting to that thing. And then they say a line and then you cut back to the other person. So like this, really kind of terrifying Ruben Oslin style um, conversation filming. And then 
like we were talking about how to do the montage of like PJ talking about digital marketing and like we knew that that was going to be this like sickening 360 shot and like how cool and Scorsese can we get uh, with that fun shit. I don't know. It was like we had long conversations with our cinematographer, Ken Wales. This is his first feature um, as a cinematographer. He'd been a gaffer for, you know, and to 10 years or something like that. But we just had these like funny conversations of how to make it look. And he made it look unbelievable. It should not look this good. And then it's also in, it's, it's in widescreen, right? It changes. So, yeah. So we shot it with a, with a 2.35 aspect ratio. And then but we but we shot it in 16 by 9. We shot on the Alexa Mini. And then when uh, there are certain moments in the film where we open it up, like when he's being honest or when he gets the purple envelopes, there's a couple of like stylistic changes with the aspect ratio to kind of make bring the audience in in a neat way. And the funny thing that happens, though, you know, ultimately is he almost gets like dissociated and then he has to like reassemble himself somehow at a certain point is he also just kind of going a little nuts yeah i mean by the end of the film it's like a korean horror movie he's like <laughs> you know so like i i won't go into too much detail but it's it's yeah. weird that he become it becomes very violent and the movie starts very violent but he feels like he's forced to to get revenge yeah he wants to find out who the person is i mean he yeah. actually gets good i mean for for the first half of the movie he's terrible at lying he's terrible at his job he's terrible at actually detecting what he needs to and he actually he actually figures it out yeah. where nobody else could. Yeah. Um, but what he finds out is not what he hoped. Uh, and I think that's what finally traps him to be like, all right, maybe it's time to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah maybe, and I think, yeah, is, that was the whole yeah. thing. It was, it, was, it was always building up to that moment of being caught trying to burn your clothes in a parking lot and then yeah. your wife sees you. And you're and like, like, all right, maybe I should I come clean. I can't lie about this, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, so like, and that was like the, the Ricky Gervais style comedy stuff of like, you know, being in this ridiculous situation, like holding the lighter or the, you know, li- you know liquid propane or whatever. Uh, and then I go, uh, so I was in the car and then he's like, like, like to cover up. Like, dude, just, just be honest. Yeah. Just be honest. And then, yeah. yeah, and then he does. And it's a lot of fun because he admits to all of the lies that the audience has tracked for the previous 80 minutes. Yeah, it, we, we wanted that to be like super fulfilling. He has this moment of recognition, basically. It's like, yes. wow. It, it is a very clairvoyant moment, just like looking at, yeah, his lighter and his lighter <laughs> fluid clothes in the parking lot. Just, oh, yeah, this is ridiculous. Yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe this is the time. But yeah, that, that, I, think, I think it does. I mean, there's, there's a moment in the movie where we have this like Oracle agent played by Bridge Stewart. He goes, uh, I think maybe now is a good time that we all just take a minute and re- really reconsider what it is we're doing here. And it's like, yeah. that that is like such a wonderful thing to hear in a boardroom meeting of like, yeah. what is the point of us? And it's like this weird existential crisis that everybody's going through. Um, but yeah, that's the thing. Like they, they, they're doing this constant grind. They never have a chance to be undissociated. They're like completely disillusioned by the career path rather than like, what what's the point of us? What are we doing here? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that's something that you keep managing to do, showing him just being kind of beyond rude, just kind of breaking boundaries in a way, and that's kind of a remarkable thing to be able to do. It's differently disturbing each time it happens, and then he has this patter, the let's keep talking thing. I mean, is that something you you have you've heard a fair amount before? Yeah, I mean it's uh, just like we 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 love like corporate doublespeak, like that kind of yeah. stuff where in the in the industry. All it takes is, I mean, we have so many screenwriter friends that are like, oh, yeah, I sent it to these people. They said they're excited about the script. And it's like, they didn't read the script. Nobody reads the script, dude. Yeah. Like, and as soon as they say, let's keep talking, that's me. that means like, all right, come back in six months. Yeah, well, let's keep <laughs> talking. Like, and, and that's the thing. Like, like, and, and there's one of my favorite moments. Um, there's a couple of things that we actually put in from our own experiences. 
but there's a moment where I'm trying to get this Chinese billionaire to like come on board at the agency. And uh, I say, if there's any books or any like movies or any articles that you like, maybe we could like work on getting those rights. And that's how basically every pitch meeting or general meeting t- mm-hmm. happens where like someone who works for an intellectual property firm is looking to get the rights of something good. So if I say I'm a fan of Rudyard Kipling or something like that, they're going to buy the rights to the Jungle Book so that I have to go through them in order for me to be able to make the dream come true. And so it's like, it's just this shell game. And we we were able to populate Mm -hmm. the movie with so much of that language in order to diffuse it for people who are going to watch and go, oh, that's just that's just phony. Yeah, it's it's tough. We're guilty of it too. I'll, I'll be. It's it's just Zoom meeting kind of filler talk, and it's tough because we'll end the conversation. And the obvious thing to do is be like, "Cool, we're very excited about this conversation we just had." And now exciting. we can't do. It. We're excited. Like, yeah, we've been saying I'm pumped a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. We've got to change our own language because we can't do the bullshit. Speaking. Yeah, right. we are thrilled. We're stoked. Uh, we're stoked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you know. That's just that's just how any conversation. It doesn't have to be industry yeah. specific, industry related. That's just human corporate double speak of cool. <laughs> let's continue to be enthusiastic about something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of just how it is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But like, but we can still make fun of it. It just feels like it feels <laughs> yeah. like it's it's like this bizarre politics. I guess like that's where that politics. language comes from of like phoniness to try for other reasons for political reasons and we got into film because we're really bad at that stuff like i i hate that stuff and so like i, I i'm a i'm a like a i'm a film nerd and you know i didn't i didn't like any of that stuff so it's, it's nice to be able to make fun of it openly finally yeah so this is showing in in tribeca and it premiered it had its world premiere in berlin and i remember there was there was sort of a curiosity because it wasn't available for press to screen online i was curious what was what was the reason for that in the version that we had for Berlin, there were a couple of people listed in the credits that were anonymous sources, and they hadn't left the agency world. So because of COVID, we thought that they were going to be gone by then. They thought they were going to be gone by then. And oh. instead, it's like, oh, now I'm still here, and please don't <laughs> list my name publicly yet. So yeah, that was why. And now it just says, in the credits, it says anonymous sources. But but yeah, I mean, I it, it's funny to me. Like, we wanted it to be entirely in person. Like, we had a thousand reasons why we didn't want to be digital. And like, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a bunch of good movies that you can watch. Ours is this, like, goofy comedy, and it'll come out, you know, in November with IFC. So everybody will be able to see it. But I kind of wanted it to be just for these festivals and not out in the open. Yeah, I totally understand that. Did you hear any um, German critic reactions to it or audience reactions? No, not yet. Uh, apart from the jury, and they were like, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but no, no, no. Uh, the, Germany is interesting because Germans didn't necessarily like, I think some of our worst reviews of Thunder Road came from Germany, or they were in German, and they said, you should take out the comedy from the movie. He's trying to be funny. And uh, and so I was like, oh, I, so I don't know how the Germans are going to interpret the movie. Yeah, but I, we had it translated to German, and so we're going to Berlin on you know next Wednesday, and we're going right. to screen it twice. Yeah, for the yeah. summer series, which yeah. should be fun. Um, so I'll let you know in a week, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll find out soon. Yeah. All right. So I, I think that brings us to the the question I like to ask everyone: What was the last thing you saw? What was the last movie that you saw? Uh, we stayed up late and watched um, the new Conjuring movie, The Conjuring Three. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm such a fan of Ed and Lorraine uh, and that narrative. They are just like the, the most lovely couple. I love James Wan. I think the second Conjuring movie is a masterpiece and really well done. 
And so I like had PJ and all of our friends over to watch that one. Yeah. That's great. I, I still have to see it. I, I will definitely see it now. Um, it's, it's fine. The second Conjuring is really, really great. Okay. It's really, really great. Yeah. Eventually they're going to figure this devil thing out. You know, they're, 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 they're going to get to the bottom <laughs> I think of this you whole... just find the guy and get him. I think you just find him. I mean, and that's the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to ask this at the beginning, but I, I mean, how did you two meet originally? We went to school together. PJ was in the acting program at Emerson and I was in the uh, directing program. And then we just made short films. But then when I was making stuff with our buddy, Tony Ascenda, Tony who made American Vandal was his roommate. And so we were kind of like hanging out all the time. And then we started cool. making short films and then yeah. expanded the features. Well, I, I really look forward to what, what you make next. And I can't wait for people to see the, the Bennett test. Um, thanks so much, Jim and PJ, for taking the time. Thank for you for sure. having us. Thank you. Last episode, I talked with writer and critic Bruce Bennett about the films of Bud Bedecker and writing true crime. This week, we conclude our conversation with two more unforgettable movies that Bruce watched. First up is Zero Focus, a Japanese mystery-slash-melodrama from 1961 that exists in what Bruce calls the wilderness of memory. Then, we plumb the insane depths of The Human Factor the final film of one-time blacklisted director Edward Dimitrik. That leads us into talking about the eminently average actor George Kennedy, the star of The Human Factor, and then about the secret history of alleged crime family ties in the movie industry. I would love to talk about a couple of the other movies that you picked because I, I, I thought they were also really great. And actually, maybe we can talk about Zero Focus. Oh, yeah. Because that was a movie I didn't know. and Me neither. It's it's in a way maybe some really twisted kind of true crime thing, it, it, like if a yeah. true crime thing kind of metastasized or something. I, I was saying before that there was a way in which the movies that you picked kind of had connection. I mean, for me, what it was is just having this unexpected twisted killing streak to them <laughs> in a way. Each of them in their own context, shocking me a little bit. I mean, for The Tall T, it was... You know, you kind of mentioned just these kind of offhanded references to throwing bodies in the well uh, and people's, you know, shotgun through the head. Throwing a child's body in a well. I mean, <laughs> it's like, you know, like that's that's the moral universe that, and laughing about it. Like that's the moral universe that uh, that, that movie takes place in. It does kind of feel like the universe we happen to live in, but whatever. No, but that's it. I mean, something about it. Yeah, the brutality of it. And with zero focus, I mean, it's almost, you know, I just realized this. This is almost a movie that's almost impossible to talk about without <laughs> going into some of its stories. I mean, how do we talk about this? Because for at least half the movie, it's an investigation that is just sort of turning up empty leads. It's almost unavoidable. And the part I'm talking about sort of comes in later. Right. But I mean, most of it is just a, it's just a woman looking for her husband and trying to figure out where he's gone because they just got married and he instantly disappeared and she can't really figure it out. This is something you watched on the on Criterion yeah. channel? Yeah, you know, Criterion had has a season or what do they call them? They call them collections. Uh, Criterion has a collection uh, called Japanese Noir, and 
I, you know, it's it's a sort of I, my sort of knee jerk thing. My my wife is a tremendous enthusiast of like the Seijin Suzuki films, and you know that, that sort of that subgenre of Japanese films that like you know I think of it as involving you know wraparounds and silencers, you know, and um, you know Nakatsu, the the Nakatsu uh, crime pictures or whatever, because like you know Japanese cinema of the fifties and sixties is very much. I, I think a very uh, reasonable way of kind of absorbing it and looking at it is kind of going studio by studio. What the, the Criterion collection, the, the Japanese noir collection that they currently have up on the on the, their streaming service, uh, ha- it's kind of all over the place. And I kind of didn't realize it uh, until we started getting into it. And, you know, so we watched a couple of these, um, you know, the Nakatsu ones and uh, Cruel Gun Story, which is like, it's like it has all these fight scenes, which are like little kids having fights. It's so cool, you know. But Cool Gun Story is directed by the same guy that he wound up making a couple of those fake James Bond movies at the Shaw Studios in the in the mid '60s. So it's and we happen uh, to we coincidentally had watched Black Falcon a few weeks before, so it was just kind of like, oh, I get it. It's just this sort of you know, it's sort of almost like little kids' idea of how like these kind of wide, high angle fight scenes with people sort of slapping each other and throwing each other around or whatever. It's almost like sort of a more kind of kinetic and, and ominous Three Stooges thing. And and there's also in the, the Criterion Cull, there's a bunch of Kurosawa movies. Yeah. The Zero Focus was, there's a handful of movies that were made at Shokuchu, which again, and that's sort of the studio driven idea of Japanese cinema. It's like, it was almost, it was more sort of the, the ladies film, the, you know, the, the, what they used to call women's pictures. Well, we still do in our house, but the uh, right. almost almost sort of the lifetime channel of of, uh, of Japanese studios. And so Zero Focus is like, I mean, I, to me, it's like this, you know, the, the detective basically solves the crime by being scrupulously polite and patient and forbearing for like like two years you know like that's that's and, and, and it's it's it, it, as dumb as that may sound it's so great and it's also you know i knew nothing about this director it turns out he's insanely pr- prolific his uh yashitoro nomura not only did he make this film and a couple of other uh, crime films that are based on novels, which which Zero Focus is, but he made another one at Shokachu from the same novelist that's also in the same Criterion thing called Stakeout, which is, I, you know, I, it, to me, is not mm. as good a movie. It's also, for what it's worth, it's not a very good transfer. So it was like, it was a little kind of, I thought there was something wrong with our Wi-Fi, but it's just like, it's just one of those, I don't know, PAL conversion things or whatever. But Zero Focus, it, uh-huh. it is so enslaved to this kind of novelist novelistic storytelling that at one point I did turn to Giovanna and say, whose flashback are we in right now? Because I feel like our protagonist is telling a story that somebody else recounted to her that that character in turn is recounting from having been told by a third person. Right. And it's, again, it's one of these things where it's like, that would be chaos in a contemporary movie, but in these hands, you know, with it, like the, you know, the way the actors are, and it's just, it's, I count the dissolves in that movie, you know, I mean, count the sort of the laps and dissolves and, you know, crossfades and stuff in that movie. Like it was potentially, if you'd stopped the movie and gone like, okay, who's talking, where are we? I kind of couldn't have told you, but it didn't matter. It's a little like Jacques Tourneur, I think was like really had a real gift for that. Like, yeah, you know, his, his movie, movie stars in my crown, like, I swear to God, we'd go 
two steps forward and or two, two steps back and one forward, I think even before the credits are over, like there's sort of a book opens and we go back and somebody's voices, I remember. And then we're like, okay, we're, we're, we're just in the wilderness of memory, you know? And so like zero focus taking place in the wilderness of memory, it kind of makes up for the fact that like not a whole lot happens for a while. And like that most important thing to me is that in any whodunit is the least important thing is whodunit. The most important thing is the why done it and what are you going to do about it? And like, wow, I mean, zero focus, like of the, I don't know, like eight movies that we've watched in the Criterion thing, I think six or seven of them really do prominently involve the American occupation, post-war occupation. And zero focus is a perfect example of Mm -hmm. that, that basically this one character's past, you know, as a sort of relatively complicit victim of the American op- occupation just makes her a homicidal maniac. You know, it's like, like anything she can do to snuff out this, you know, any memory of what it is that she'd done, like she's going to do, including, you know, offing this woman's poor husband, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's so right. What you're saying about the why, the, the why done it being the crux of it, because that's, that's the kind of feverish climax of oh, the God. movie, which uh, is the cliffhanger. Yeah, a literal cliffhanger where you're kind of presented with a number of explanations from each character of, of the events that, that you've you've learned about so far. And it's it's sort of at the end of each, you know, it's funny, like if after after the wife tells one, after, you know, the uh, the woman you're, you're describing tells one of the past that she's just fearful to death of, of having shame over getting exposed, you know, she tells a version after each one. I'm like, okay, is this the version? You're like, you're always right. waiting for someone to say, and that's it. You know, it's like, but you, you know, you know, you don't, you don't know. And that's, it's, it's such an, such an amazing ending. And just, it just kind of also plays with your kind of moral judgment yeah. that, you know, I think any viewer brings because I, I don't know. I realized I was like weighing these stories against each other in interesting ways and seeing, well, how does each character feel and, and make out with, with each of these stories, you know, um, because they're each so self-conscious of like, you know, the shame involved in like, is this story worse for this person, but better for this, you know, it's, and it's, and it's amazing, these small calibrations between uh, each of them. And then, yeah, all, all of this occurring on, <laughs> on a cliff as if it couldn't be more dramatic enough. So there's this like highly, you know, you said the wilderness of memory, this high, highly almost cerebral aspect to it. Cause it's all stories, but they're physically on the edge. That's one of the sort of greatest climaxes I've I've seen in a while. Yeah, it's so great to hear you say that because we were both gobsmacked, and uh, you know, the it. I I don't want to say intricate because it's it's just complex. It's it's like it's intricate and impressionistic at the same time. The way that all this stuff is lumped together, and what it, you know, and I'm sorry not to, to negative negative yeah. campaign once again, but like it's not this sort of chicken shit Christopher Nolan, like if you can figure out the puzzle, you know, like you've somehow are good, like, yeah, you know, okay. you're going to get more out of the movie. It doesn't matter what matters is, and is, right. is the feeling, you know, and that's one of those great things about in a way, like, you know, what were generally, at least to me, sort of almost pan culturally, what are essentially marketed as women's pictures at their very best, they're sort of, Yes, they're melodramas, but because they're so emotionally predicated rather than being sort of circumstance or, you know, or, or you know, detail predicated or whatever, they're, they're ultimately so much more honest and so much more fast, fascinating. So 
you know, she has that. I was I, and I'm kicking myself now. Maybe everybody's getting off easy. I don't know. I was going to write down the subtitles for that little soliloquy that she does in the end because it's so, I don't know if you recall, but it's so beautiful. And it's just this thing of like the depths of the ocean and the feeling in my heart and everything. And it's just like, yeah, like <laughs> you're just, you're completely yeah. with her. Like, it's like, you know, and she turns on her, he actually stumbles a little bit. It's so beautiful. It's a, a mainstream Japanese movie in the late fifties or early sixties It's 61, something like that. So it's widescreen black and white. And if there's one thing the Japanese got right in, you know, in that era, it's like their widescreen is just like unimpeachably beautiful. Yeah. And so like, you know, it's a very quickly made and inexpensively made, you know, sort of thrifty movie. You can kind of tell if you, you know, if you go back through it and break down just like where physically we are, it's not that many locations. We go back to a lot of the same places over and over again, which is like, you know, kind of the sort of inside hallmarks of, of low budget filmmaking sometimes, you know, like, you know, like locations where you don't need to control people, you know, like cliff edges and stuff like that. It's a relatively inexpensively made movie, I think. And it just looks flabbergastingly great. Yeah. But just that, you know, that it's so keyed on her. You know, it's a movie about grief. It's a movie about accepting that your husband's gone and that ultimately the reason why it's just, all, you know, it's not like justice is done or whatever the heck else or like my life is ruined. It's just kind of like, well, I can sort of dot that I with a little little heart emoji or whatever. I don't know. Like it's 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 <laughs> it's genuinely moving and it's genuinely just the idea that like, you know, surviving or enduring grief and surviving any any kind of deprivation just is so much of the simplest, dumbest thing in the world. But yeah, you know, it's just, it involves acceptance, but it also but acceptance involves a full understanding of what it was that happened, and like that's kind of what we get out of it. It's kind of what she gets out of it, and then she just she very delicately and gracefully wanders off back to what you know what was her job? It's just this sort of amorphous desk thing that she did in Tokyo. You know, like she's like okay, like they're back to. Uh, yeah, I mean. It- it looked like she was like in a typing pool yeah, or something yeah. for her for father or company or something. Yeah. And yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. It's so it's so moving because the way she moves from a character where in the you know first half hour you think this is going to be a reacting character, like she's going to be there and she's sort of accompanying some actual some investigation, but eventually she is, of course, the one who is experiencing all of this, and and by the end, you know, you get to know that you know, she's not just going to be playing the the polite wife to whom this is happening. And yeah, you get to learn all that's going through her head. And and the movie starts at such a strange inflection point too, which is that, you know, in her mind, she's just about to have her great romance. You know, I mean, this is like, (laughs) timing couldn't be worse. (laughs) I mean, it's like a week after they've, they've married. And there's this kind of running thing of where, you know, oh, you turned down all these other men and you took this guy. And, and there's this amazing little flashback where she just says, oh, I was so overcome by his, by his passion. It's almost like there's a whole other movie under the surface of this movie, which is that the, the passion and romance that drove her yeah. um, to this union. Um, and then that the rug is completely pulled out from under that. And, you know, you have this limbo for the first half of the movie it's of just a person who's missing and all she has are these like two photos of houses that she's trying to put together i know i know it it, it also i mean it's you know it's as a essentially professional plot bully i they, like <laughs> this comes up all the time in the work that i do I, the like if the crime is the realization that someone is absent it's so inherently passive mm. it's a terrible way to start a story but in the work that I do, it comes up all the time. 
And I thought that was handled so well huh. because it's just, it's inherently, you know, whatever, like the, you know, the, the sort of formula thing, is it like, you know, how does it go? Like the, the, the world's at a status quo and then something happens that threatens it or whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, like again, sort of Robert McKee seminar kind of thinking or whatever, which, you know, it's, it's a perfectly reasonable and, and actionable way of looking at writing one of these things. Nowhere does it say that like, it should start with a weird, confusing, hollow absence and that should drive the first couple of acts. But like, <laughs> it's precisely what happens in this movie. And it's, it's super compelling, but I think right. it really, I, whatever, I'm, I'm one of the many things I'm not is a Japanese housewife in the early sixties, but I think the reflection of how life may have been lived or how like the, the, the tension between, you know, the wide open spaces of one's interior emotional life. And then the very narrow, certainly in Japanese society, and certainly in that era, expectation of how it is you should be behaving as a woman in Japan in the early 60s. I think there was probably a huge resonance in that, you know, that like, I'm just like, yeah. And I also, I love to, I would, uh, Javon and I both have been to Japan a, a few times. We went there on our honeymoon, amongst other things. We fell in love with this city called Kanazawa, and that's where it's where bulk of the stuff uh, the movie takes place. And I loved, you know, one of the things, one of the things that really opened up, literally opened up Kanazawa to tourism and like, you know, disgusting gaijin like my wife and, and myself, is that they actually got a bullet train in there, but it really only in the last twenty years. So there's, and this is in Stakeout, in the other uh, movie that the uh, same novelist. Uh, source and same director from Chokachu that, that's also in that collection. I, the, the, that there's basically like a two day train ride across Japan to get to Kanazawa. That's no longer the case. Like you get on the you know the Shinkansen or whatever, and like you're there in mm. you know, four hours and have a beer or whatever while you while, while you're going. I love that whole transitional thing and that just this sort of like this weird yeah. meander back and forth. You know, and that like the emotional practical zone, the expectations, the society that she was obliged to to you know sort of bend her will to in Tokyo was very different than the one in Kanazawa. You know, and the super polite, you know, the sort of the rustic cops in Kanazawa, you know, versus the cops in Tokyo, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah, it was really fascinating, and I think I don't know. I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of describing this, but I, you know, I feel that that represented. It was a sort of a heightened or kind of like, you know, distilled essence of kind of what was going on in a lot of people's lives in Japan at the time, because like they'd lost a a war, an imperial war. They'd had like fallen short of actually having their country invaded outright. But like, yeah, two atom bombs, Tokyo firebombed, et cetera, et cetera. Kanazawa was one of those places that was so far west it didn't get bombed. It's one of the things that makes it a great tourist destination now like Kyoto like there's a bunch of old stuff there and very old mm. country old, old culture the fact that you would have to go to and from different parts of the country I think in order to maintain family connection in order to maintain employment I think was a, a genuine reality in that area in Japan or something that that I think audiences there could really respond to emotionally and I love that that sort of is layered in very effortlessly right so it was I, we were shocked I mean both of us are just yeah, like yeah yeah okay that movie was so cool. Why has neither of us ever heard of it? You know, and and then you know poking around online and going like, okay, this director is so insanely prolific, and like a third of his output are like novel based, essentially true crime styled dramas like this. Why have we never seen any of the others? You know, but there you go. Thanks, Criterion. Yeah, <laughs> I, I had the same reaction. You know, and and I mean, it's just I I have to say that it often happens with Japanese yeah. directors, and there was just so much more to mine there. And I began to understand that a director like this just 
like sort of lying in plain sight once you just sort of look through the, uh, the what, what he's directed. I mean, but yeah, this is pretty remarkable. And, and also, again, that, that kind of low-key, I guess you can, I can imagine someone scanning it or like watching the first 25 minutes and thinking, eh, this isn't really going anywhere <laughs> yeah. a little bit. You know, you stick around and, and all the layering, also the, the setting of this out-of-the-way place where, I forget the name, it's in yeah. Noto peninsula think, or something yeah, like that um that's you know also just yeah also just great rural setting and it like a you know, kind of a fargo-esque sense of of this backcountry and and the post-war stuff you, you feel the aftershocks uh here and ultimately the the movie ends by being about processing experience you know yeah i mean that's like the, the last 15 minutes is just like okay so what happened what really happened i what do i think about that and the actress uh, who plays the wife is Yoshiko uh, Kuga. Just want to mention her. Yeah, it, it it has it also it has that sort of the uh, regardless of studio. I think Japanese films of that era, fifties and sixties, all the studios would sign actors uh, and have them under contract. And then it's kind of a sort of quintessentially Japanese thing that they, at least to me, that uh, they they really would insist that these guys, you know, guys and gals would have to work, and so. I, you know, my dad was like, I, I, my dad was a fan mm-hmm. of Japanese cinema and I, I grew up outside of DC and there was like, luckily, whatever, like, as it turned out, you could see uh, old movies and old foreign movies relatively easy in the seventies in, in DC. And so we would go, you know, he took me to see Yojimbo when I was a kid and, you know, the, the obvious masterworks or whatever. I, one of the things I always assumed that there was some cultural divide that I couldn't quite get over about like, what seemed to me is often like the sort of needless proliferation of characters and complexity of story, you know, like, well, this guy's the, you know, the, this is the Chamberlain and this is the Shogun and this is the da da da, you know, and this is, a, you know, all of these different dudes. Like, I, I think Pena actually might have explained this to me. The Japanese studios, they would have all these people under contract, but they would insist that they would have to work. And so the writers would write all of these different parts into scripts in order to get them greenlit and move forward so that essentially people under contract would have work. And so it's this huge, you know, again, a very, it's a very tidy, it's not very long, clearly not very expensive to produce, but there's a ton of people in it and a ton of speaking parts in it, you know? And in this instance, because it's, because, you know, the, the sole controlling idea of it really is that like, I want to find out what happened to my husband. It kind of keeps things between, you know, kind of keeps, things like in the, you know, in the right lane all the way through, there's not this kind of thing of like, oh, wait, so which clan is this? And who's like this guy and that, you know, that you get in Shinbara and some other, like some of the other uh, genres right. in Japanese film, because there's just like a dozen speaking parts more than you'd expect for like a, you know, a sword fight movie, what have you. The, you know, in this one, it's, they're, they're very tender. Yeah. I love it. And so, by the way, I'm sorry, I meant to say this before. I'm so glad that you, that you responded to it in the, in the way that you did, because I, it just blew my mind. I just thought it was so great. I love the, 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 you know, oh, yeah. the regional yeah. cop guys, you know, like they were great. And everybody is aspiring to a level of tenderness and sensitivity that circumstances just kind of don't really permit themselves, permit them. And I, you know, I just, I, I personally responded very strongly to that. You know, I, I just thought it was lovely. Yeah, no, me too. No, I love the regional cop. I mean, I don't know if this is. There's a couple of them, right? Yeah. 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 Well, one of them is the guy who has like a body of a missing, of a, of a, a, a suicide. And so she goes out to see if it, she would, she can identify her husband or not. And afterwards, the cop is just like sort of giving her tea. And he's like, you know, it's so hard uh, showing people bodies. Like, you know, no one understands how hard this totally, job is. Yeah. It's just, it's just this 
this great little detail just in, into into his his perspective at that moment. And meanwhile, I'm, I was just thinking about her. It's like, okay, so obviously it would have been like c- catastrophic if that was your husband, but it's also still pretty horrible to see a dead mangled body. <laughs> and so she's processing that bit of experience that she has there. So yeah, just so much going on there. I mean, yeah, I w- honestly, I, I would have, I had been missing this movie, even though I'm, I'm usually trawling these different uh, criterion sets of movies so no thanks for, for for pointing that one out i got all the time in the world nick i like i like i, I could do this till i'm hoarse <laughs> i you know honestly that like one of the sort of the minor social deprivations that i've experienced and like <laughs> unfortunately my wife has taken up the slack for this is that like <laughs> i do really like to talk about the movies that i'm watching and like you know like it's it's you're doing god's work here basically by like you know like i'm I'm expressing that gland so i can stop you know like following my wife around going like you know the thing you don't understand about byron haskin that nobody understands is that you know or etc yeah same here there you go yeah this this third movie i don't even know where to be, begin with it it's it's such a curious curiosity the human factor the with human in quotes um <laughs> which is yeah. priceless. And this is a 1975 movie, Ed, Edward Dimitrik. And I guess it's maybe his last feature. It was indeed his last feature. If, if the internet can be trusted. I also actually also happens to be on career. We're not shilling, we promise, but it well, also happens to be there. Yeah, it is. Well, okay, look, we're not shilling for Criterion. I'll prove it because like, inexplicably they're running it in four by three, you know, in the old TV format from what looks like a VHS. So like, you know, on the one hand, like, Oh, how dare you criteria? You know, like, you know, like I'm going to get on the internet and and flame you or whatever. But on the, you know, on the other hand, it's like, it's the perfect movie to see in four by three and like (laughs) VH level, VHS level resolution. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, it's one of those movies that, you know, watching an afternoon, it, it falls under a large sort of non genre umbrella for me of like, the kind of thing, if you saw it on broadcast, you'd kind of wonder, like, did this get cut a lot for violence and time or does it just not make any sense? I, can't, I honestly can't tell, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's it's also like it's a movie that feels like some screenwriter or someone was like picking up the fumes of lots yeah. of other movies in, yeah. at the time. But but it was all but then you end up having George Kennedy in it. So it just it, it just also which just makes turns it into something just gives it this main bland center to it that is un, unsettling its own way because of what he's made to do and what his character is. I mean, just I don't know even know how one can summarize this, but Basically, George Kennedy plays a computer engineer, I guess you'd say, which in 1975 is, I guess, especially exotic. And I just actually, it's interesting. It's just like every little thing to the movie has some weird little twist to yeah. it. He's a computer engineer, but he works in like the supercomputer section of the like Allied High Command. NATO. In, in NATO, sorry, yeah. NATO High Command in Italy. So like there's another layer to it, which also, by the way, I think is why Danny Houston uh, has his first speaking role ah, in this movie. You caught I think that. He was born in Rome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's one of George Kennedy's kids. <laughs> they, they did a, uh, you know, uh, Jake Perlin did a fantastic Houston season at uh, Film Society a few years ago, but then a few years before that, and this is increasingly the case, I think I'm saying a few years ago, and it was like half a decade, whatever. MoMA did a sort of Houston family yeah, thing. Same. And I, I, for a heartbeat, I was going to interview Danny Houston, and I, I regret 
I regret, I would have loved to have talked to him because it just, I, just that voice, you know, nothing else. But at the time I wasn't aware, I wasn't aware of the human factor until I, I watched it a few weeks ago, whatever it was. I would have loved to have gone like, Hey, Danny, just right off the bat, the human factor, what the hell? Like, like, how, how, did you read for that? You know, like, like, how did that happen? Where was your dad this whole time? You know? Yeah. I, and I mean, the weird thing is that there's this huge gap after that. I mean, he doesn't really start acting at least again, according to almighty IMDb for like many years after that. So who knows? Um, someone made a phone call. I yeah. Guess. Well, maybe, maybe some wilderness years as a result of seeing it. I don't know. It, I mean, it's not that bad. I'm sorry. I shouldn't, I, 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 you know, don't want to get all sort of mystery science about it, but like, it's, you know, it's, I, the, the human factor folks is not for the faint of sensibility. You got to come to it with the, with the right expectations. And it's also, I mean, like, like slight little, you know, criterion thing. I inexplicably it's gathered under the collection rubric of being an Ennio Morricone score. And it is like, it is the, by the standards of a career that had a, more than a few phone in scores, like, it's pretty phoned in at, uh, at music level, but be that as it may. Yeah. Oh, this is com- by now far back on the road, but I, I did just want to flag the score for the tall T, which is, uh, I thought was pretty cool. Uh, it, in the beginning, it, it has this kind of galumphing like quality, like it seems yeah. like an off the shelf sort of Western thing, but there's this weird like minor key under, under I don't know, undertone. Kind of anyway. Yeah. I think Dave Kerr like uh, made the comparison. Somebody that I, that I read made the comparison between the Bedeker Westerns and Ozu because they like, they often also have this kind of like, you know, kind of like oh, wow. cheerful clip clop kind of music. Like whenever anybody's riding, uh-huh. that just seems completely against the grain of what's, you know, whatever the, you know, there's like these like really grim dramatic stakes. I, something else, sorry, by the way, like you popped the top on this, something else I wanted to say about the tall T and yeah. about seven <laughs> men from now and Bedeker stuff is that like, there's this really intense emphasis on the physical value of people like commodities and, you know, obviously like the Maureen O'Sullivan character in the yes. tall T is like, there's the ransom, but like, there's a really great beat in, uh, in seven men from now. And in fact, I think the actor that plays, it's a, it's a, a prospector, you know, another sort of stock character is a prospector character in seven men from now that's played by the same guy that plays the station man in tall T who at one point they're talking about Indians kidnapping people and ransoming them or whatever. And the guy says like, I've never had any problem with Indians in essence, because they don't seem to see any value in me. And it's the saddest, like grimmest. It's this sort of genre kind of, you know, mythic explication of just having absolutely no self-worth at all. And it's really striking. And it's just like, yeah, yet another one of these, like these very like unblinkingly tender moments in these kind of, you know, Western circus movies, you know, Right. Back to the human factor. Back. To, yeah, we'll jump back from our from our footnote. But yeah, the human factor. I mean, a part of what's strange about it, it's one of these movies, you know, where yeah, it has like trappings of like trying to pick some like cool new thing, which I guess would be the, like the computer feature, um, and seeing <laughs> how that would play out. But with with like of humans and and how to affect humans, like you you feel like someone, which I guess would describe the director, someone from like an earlier generation saying, okay, but you know, how will this affect? how people make decisions. I actually thought it was kind of interesting what, what yeah. he came up with because it ends up it ends up kind of like jamming the works of the plot machinery because they can just they just end up sort of plugging things in. Um, you're already telegraphed the motivations of George Kennedy's character because it, someone does like a runs like a behavioral profile on him that says he's has a certain percentage likelihood to like try to kill the people he's he's investigating. So 
like a little earlier than you might otherwise, you know that this is like a vengeance <laughs> movie. Right. I mean, nothing about like Kennedy's, is it going to be telegraphed? I thought, because I mean, the inciting event, I guess we should, we should say, is that out of nowhere, and this is was genuinely shocking to me, um, these <laughs> masked gunmen shoot execution style his entire family. Yeah, there's no other way to put it, and it happens, you know, when he's away at, at work. So he comes home and sees, you know, all the, all the cops and every, everyone, everyone standing around. And I, <laughs> this is not what I was I was expecting when I like read the, you know, that that and that that continues through the whole movie because it ends up being this terrorist cell. Again, you're totally right. I have like I cannot piece together what exactly is like, the reason or what's <laughs> happening. Again, it just feels like. Something in the air. It's almost like the screenwriter was doing one thing, but then when they got to Italy, they started hearing about like the Red Brigade or something. Yeah. Or I don't know what, you know, and they're like, oh, let's stir this in because there's, I don't know, there's that. And and then the, there's the setting of where they are, which is, you know, this NATO command. So part of what George Kennedy's job seems to be is helping run the Dr. Strangelove nuclear warfare simulations. So they have this just uh, delicious shot of him just sitting next to a general as they're watching a computer simulation play out of casualties mounting on either side. By, by the millions, yeah. By the millions, yeah. And I I don't know, I, I really appreciated that as like a bit of color detail. It's just, you didn't have to, but that scoreboard is, is I'm not going to forget. <laughs> Well, yeah, and he's and he's working working uh, elbow to elbow with Rita Tushingham and John Mills because, of course, like why wouldn't they be there? Oh, yeah, that's right. She's just popping in, to, you know, to say hi and clues into to what what he's doing, uh, which is what he's doing is using these incredible like DARPA level like uh, resources <laughs> to to conduct his own personal investigation of who these killers are. So that's the whole movie, and and there are these gruesome shootouts. There's like a sh- also, pretty like harrowing uh, scene in a supermarket, which again, like a, a I love PX. the specificity of the setting. Is that what it's called? Well, yeah, I, it's the I, it's one of one of the many delights of that film for me is that I actually grew up in a place called McLean, Virginia, which is it's euphemistically referred to as Langley, Virginia, because of a specific government agency that's actually based there. And I, I actually I went to middle school across the street from the CIA. And it's not quite a military base kind of situation, but there are military bases everywhere. And there's like the, uh, George Kennedy's character is not entirely unconvincing, you know, as as like my friends, parents that, you know, dads primarily that worked for DOD or CIA or, you know, this kind of like, you know, he's kind of a, you know, technical wonk guy, but he certainly obviously has done military service and, you know, knows how to chase down and chain throttle a terrorist and, and all of that. And so that... You know, they kind of screw it up up front. I think Dimitri kind of screwed it up. I think the gag up front is we're supposed to believe that we were in any town USA as he leaves for work. And then there's some sort of shock or surprise or twist as he drives off the military base. Oh. And lo and behold, we're in Naples. But I think they screwed it up. I think it's just like they, that they kind of didn't sell that part. You're right. I think you're right. You know, because I had to kind of examine it a little. No, you're totally right. I see it. I see how it should play out because they have this whole... I mean, it's almost like the opening of like a, a commercial, I get, you know, yeah. a 70s commercial, the, the household in the morning getting ready, you know, it even ends with like a little punchline because his daughter has this kind of terrifying doll that's called a, what is it called? Like a frizzy do, she calls it. Shaggy do. Shaggy do, uh, which I'm sure now is worth millions. But at any rate, it's, um, <laughs> she has this little doll and, and they have a little banter and that's the last, but yeah, it's like a little ad almost. 
it's sort of a disaster as a movie in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, like that opening scene with the, like Danny Houston as a kid and Shaggy doing everything else. Like the wife, the actress, the actor that played the wife, she's really brutally dubbed and nobody else really is in the scene. And, that, you know, it's just there's that sort of unconscious sort of pushing away. You know, I'm, I'm not to like whatever, like meticulously examine, the, you know, like that, how successfully they rendered the sound on this movie. But it just it makes it a weird experience watching it. And it's also it's sort of of a piece and not of a piece of other films made in Italy or specifically Naples in that era. And it's like, you know, I think it was the, basically the all of the obviously, you know, studio interiors, I think, were done at Pinewood. I think probably with the same like flats and props and stuff like that that they used for a James Bond movie of that era. But then everything else is done in Italy. And it still is like this really strange, haphazard you know, because British movies of that era, like up to that era, and certainly Italian movies, like well after that era, they often post-recorded everybody. You know, they usually post, post-recorded everybody in the Italian ones, but it sort of comes and goes in that one. And it's just like, I don't know, it just adds to the unreality of like the, everybody trying so hard to make it really real. And it just gets weirder and weirder and more sort of accidentally abstract the further along you go, but in a good way. There's I, that one bit where like the woman in the PX... You know, it's, again, it's like, I, you know, I, I think it's like one of those things that maybe as scripted or possibly discussed somewhere along the way, it was meant to be kind of a add some kind of interesting layer or, you know, uh, dissonance or whatever that this, you know, American supermarket in the middle of state of the art 70s American supermarket maintained in the middle of kind of decrepit like 70s Naples would like seem a little bit strange or whatever, but they don't really end up playing it that way. But that woman that takes the machine gun and like, maybe I shouldn't talk about it because it's just, it's so cool and shocking or whatever, but like, you know, there's an additional bit of mayhem that's kind of keyed off a child oh, yeah. witnessing it in the background, which is just like, wow, you know, like it's nice to know that no matter how goofy a movie gets, if you actually stage violence in a fairly honest way, it can still yep. really be like, a real slap in the face, you know, and there's a few of those moments in there. I love, there's a, an Italian lady screaming, assassino, assassino, after he like dispatches yeah. one of those guys. Like that just flew in from another movie yeah. and it's gone again, you know, like it's, it's, <laughs> it's not without its pleasures. Yeah. I have to be honest with you. My wife is, is unhealthily obsessed with the Fiat Cinquecento, the little sort of like the, the old Fiat sort of VW bug type car. Oh, yeah. And that was one of those movies where we, after a while, we just started counting Cinquecentos, just sort of keep things kind of moving, like like adding a certain amount of focus that I just don't think existed in the, in the film otherwise. And like, it got into the double digits, which was kind of cool. It, it may hold the record. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny for all the like geopolitical excitement of, of, of the setting, the background is is uh, like just sort of strenuously mundane, you know, like there's it's not yeah. like there's, it's not a movie that like parachuted into an Italian locations um, shoot and like picked out everything that was interesting. Like, I mean, that the Assassino thing is that that feels like something from from a movie that was making more use of its setting. But this one is curiously like airless. I mean, it also I mean, there is like this pretty good car chase where it, yeah. it almost looks like the people in the street. I mean, not that they stole the shot, but that, you know, they're not I don't think they're extras because there there's there definitely seems to be some <laughs> reactions going on. From they seem genuinely around. scared. That's not entirely unprecedented in in a. Uh... I, I, I love that my, my, my wife is, her first language is Italian and she still can't pronounce this word. Uh, the, the term for Italian police movies that are police, 
Calizio Teschi? Is it really Teschi? That's it. That's it. Yeah, it looks like Chetty, and it's not. I, stealing shots in car chases and potentially putting bystanders yeah. at risk is like that. That was sort of part <laughs> of the business model. I think a certain amount of the time. It's like, like, do we talk to them about exactly. running this motorcycle through their their uh, underground parking lot, or do we just run this motorcycle through their underground parking lot? Like, let's just go ahead and run it. You know, yeah. see see how it looks. Yeah, but make sure you're rolling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I have to say, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but the car chase itself made no sense. I mean, it's, I don't know if that None. was like a, a a byproduct of the way they had to shoot it, but it, I didn't understand where they were going. At one point, they get out of their cars, even when it's the traffic is continuing. So I there was, but in a way, there was just kind of like a haphazardness that that introduced that that was uh, sort of interesting. But you know, I don't. I, I mean, this is maybe like the least exotic part of it, but consequently, perhaps also exotic but just the casting of george kennedy it sent me into this uh, sort of unwilling critical reverie about like what is george kennedy like i don't <laughs> i i mean i i feel like there are just no they're just like there are layers of experience and film history and like pop culture that are somehow lost to me that like i don't even understand him and anymore like i see him yeah. a, i'm not even like trying to talk around and say that he's like a bad actor there's like Clearly, like he does something and serves something, but there's just, I'm, I can't figure figure it out somehow. It's because he's so particularly hitting this note of I, I don't, I don't want to say like average or something, but he just carries around this aura that when he's on, I feel like it's you know a disaster film of the '70s or something. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it, it, there he's just so so resolutely identified with me for that kind of like absolutely mainstream thing. Which ends up being kind of fascinating that he can kind of carry that around and also never get too very exciting like there's something kind of interesting about it in spite of itself i don't know i don't know he's i you know he's fascinating to me i and you know he has that sort of i i think it's just that sort of the random lotto win of getting that oscar for cool hand luke it's like suddenly it's like well okay i guess it's like it's 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 leading manhood and or a decent paycheck for me from now on you know and like and that's i think that's pretty much the way that he went he uh trying to think of the right way to say this i like the I, imagining having to explain George Kennedy to somebody raised on like Tim Allen or something. It's just, you kind of can't get there. I mean, it's just such a strange, exactly. you know, like a, like a, it, it's a casting slot that no longer needs to be filled, but he does the work and he like, he sort of got, I mean, he's like, he's certainly tasked with doing yeah. some, it's doing and saying some absolutely inane and like, you know, arguably really difficult to kind of emotionally underline things. And he still sort of goes for it, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. But it's part and parcel. I think of like the, you know, you're talking about this before that, you know, how it's sort of unreal things seemed the juxtaposition of the Naples and the, and the, the, the America such as it was. And of course, part of this being in an America that's staged like that's on a soundstage in England, you know, that's kind of what we did internationally, you know, in that era, you know, like, and that's what we still do is like, we send our guys and gals over to places and we build a little America to put them in, you know, and we do this all over the globe. And so again, 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 a missed opportunity by the filmmakers, because I think there might've been at a script level, an idea that that's like, there's some tension or, you know, agency to, to portraying things that way. And they kind of forgot to really consciously portray them that way or it got lost in the you know the post-production shuffle but having george kennedy as like your token american guy like fits perfectly with that you know it's he has this sort of this yeah. non-gravitas that's like it's kind of it's right. he's so like watchably unwatchable and i you know <laughs> 
Yeah. I, lo- I loved, we watched all of the airplane, no, sorry, Freudian slip, all of the airport movies a few years ago. Airport. And I loved that, like, at sort of, you know, especially, uh, whatever, sorry to trot all this crap out, because specifically the kind of world I try not to live in. I, you know, the contemporary idea of franchise filmmaking, that George Kennedy played a character with the same name in all of the airport movies but his actual, his nominal role in all of the airport movies was completely different. He starts out like, he's like sort of the in charge of keeping the snow off the runway in the first one. And then he's sort of like the, the guy from the airline company, you know, the airplane manufacturing company that says like, well, yeah, we could drop Charlton Heston in the, you know, and he could save Karen Black, you know, from the plane that's been, where the, the flight crew has been wiped out by Dana Andrews having a heart attack in a Cessna. And then in the third one, he's this consultant that explains how it might be possible to raise the uh, jumbo jet that's been sunk in the Bermuda Triangle. And then in the the last one, he's a pilot on the Concorde, but he has the exact same name in all of them. And he's still George Kennedy, obviously, on it. So the, the term that we kind of coined over here was that he's sort of the commands what the airport movies are is the Petroniverse. Because he is his, his, his Joe Petroni is the character's name. He's the only constant in all of them, except maybe the name of the airline. I'm, I'm not positive. And yet he's ever changing. And it's like, it's what is it? Discrete. There's one of the Bunuel movies where like the lead actress just changes. She's it's the same character, but oh, it's a right. completely different actress in the, like halfway through the, uh, the movie. That obscure object of desire. I think. Yeah, it's sort of that inside out. You know, it's the same guy, but he's like, but it's not the same guy. It's the same actor, same name. Right. The same, he's spouting the same cliches, but he's flying the Concorde on this one. And he was driving a snowplow in the first one. I guess that's, that's upward mobility within the, uh, within the airport universe. And advantageous casting, I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just, he's like the utility player. He's like the, the every man, literally interchangeable. Because again, he's playing, you know, I begin to think like, okay, 20 years later, who's playing the computer engineer? It's like Robert Redford, you yeah. know, sneakers or something, yeah. you know, or, or, you know, or, or even at the time, at this time, you know, if Robert Redford was playing this character in, in, in this movie, I mean, you know, a year or two, what is it, a year or two before you had three days of the condor. It's, it's funny. It's it's like, you know, it's very much part and parcel of those sort of paperbacks that my dad would read, you know, like Alistair McLean and stuff like that. Um, the, the book was actually titled, it was Seven Days or Ten Days of the Condor, but they shortened the, the movie. They realized that they actually changed the title to Three Days of the Condor because they <laughs> essentially had the same, you know, kind of narrative material as in the book, but they had to make it happen in three days because it was just too unwieldy otherwise. <laughs> Yeah, it's very. I hadn't made that comparison. It's very similar. <laughs> oh wait, or do I mean Day of the Jackal? Wait, hey, which do I mean? Well, Day of the Jackal, which is the one with Redford. That's Three Days of the Condor. Sidney Pollock, and it's and I forget the actor's name, but the guy, one of the guys from Car Fifty Four, Where Are You, plays the assassin. I can't. I can't think of his name. I interviewed him once. I, I feel terrible <laughs> about this, but he was. He's an ex pro wrestler and a comedian, a lovely guy on the phone. But he's like, remember the the mailman with the oh, with wow. the. You know, it's like an Ingram Mac Ten or whatever. Like pulls out of his mail yeah. bag, and there's this great fight scene in this like garden apartment in Manhattan somewhere, like very British looking apartment in, in Manhattan, where I think Redford, Redford is wailing on him with a fire poker. It's a pretty <laughs> yeah. memorable movie. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it, you know, I mean, what if it was George Kennedy in uh, Three Days of the Condor? Now I, I just kind of want to putting it. Well, then it would have it felt like 10 days then. Yeah. 
they put it for like 10 days, right? Or I don't know. I just get sort of fanciful. It's like Taxi Driver starring George <laughs> Kennedy. There you go. Who's just, George Kennedy, who's just really put out by the whole thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but obviously it's seen in so many movies, but there was just something about this one and how they were clearly all these efforts with, with these details in the screenplay and, and, and setting to, to do something interesting, do something a little exotic. Um, and he's there at, at the center of it. Um, but I mean, I have to say like, as a whole, the movie did end up hitting some note for me just of like, maybe again, this is just the screenplay working overtime, but just putting side by side the, this kind of terrorism alongside the whatever military computer vision they're working on. I mean, that was sort of interesting to me. Just, I don't think the movie ever does too much of that at all. But, you know, starting out with this mass murder going on, uh, it's pointedly including that scene and that shot of like the thousands being killed and then going on with terrorist killings and then revenge killings. I, I don't, I don't think none of it's supposed to feel very good or exciting or thrilling. And I, I guess I have to get handed to the movie for that. I, and, and that's not a backhanded compliment. I mean, I think the terrorist attacks are I, I they're pretty unsettling yeah. you know i mean cuz they're because they're executing families that's what their their gambit is for for whatever obscure reason and that was uh, i mean for again for a movie that stars george kennedy that that was pretty hard boiled stuff to be to be to be doing and i don't know anything about the production his production oh, or oh boy. i didn't even look that up well, yeah, it's it's uh it's it's quite a quite a provenance on that picture. It's actually it's a it's a product of Oh, of, really? Yeah. I they're, they're, How do you explain? I Bryanston Distributing <laughs> is basically wholly run by the Colombo crime family. And in fact, there's there's uh, I, I'm sufficiently geeked out that I have a I, a small press book that was written by a lovely actor who's in it. As you may know, and nobody else should probably care, I'm, I'm frankly really obsessed with British film, and is particularly with Edie Plan, which, long story short, like there, there, a lot of movies got made in England in the 50s and 60s and 70s that wouldn't have gotten made in England except uh-huh. for the British government. They essentially kicked back money legally. This, is, this has nothing to do with the Colombo crime family. And because American <laughs> studios had money that were the assets that were frozen over there or whatever. So, you know, that's why Kubrick made all those movies in the UK. And that's why Sidney Lumet like made all those movies in the UK and everything is because like, oh. you know, that's why Richard Lester wound up over there. And this, this movie was, the, it's really confusing because there's two Bryanston production fiefdoms. One is this very legit one that when the British government uh, actually took over a distributorship in the late 50s, there was this company called Bryanston, B-R-Y-A-N-S-T-O-N, that was run by uh, Michael Balkin, who's a great sort of leading light of, uh, of a producer, behind the scenes producer, British cinema. They distributed like the Woodfall movies, the, you know, like uh, Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner and everything. They were out of business long before uh-huh. this movie was made and before the other Bryanston uh, started going. The other Bryanston was... Is these guys, the Pereno brothers, who were like mobsters, tempted to do the Jesus and Marrow thing and say allegedly, but I think they're all dead. Like the, uh, and they were the guys that they bankrolled <laughs> and profited from uh, Deep Throat and Devil and Miss Jones. And they're also the ones that ripped off Toby oh, Hooper no and the guys kidding. that made uh, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And in fact, I, I plug this every chance wow. I get. Folks, if you Google Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Texas Monthly, it may be paywalled now. Somebody told me it might have changed recently. Uh, there's a tremendous article about the making of that movie. And they talk about like uh, yeah, like things going a little haywire on the back end. But the Pirinos, oh like God. two of those guys 
wound up in jail. There's this famous trial where Harry Reams was the porn star, was defended by Alan Dershowitz in Memphis, Tennessee, in an insanity trial. And so such of the money guys behind <laughs> this movie, are, two of those guys went to jail for like, I think like a year or whatever because of that. But sorry, lovely American actor who was oh part God. of this community of American and, and Canadian actors that got lots of work in the UK because there were all of these essentially American style productions getting made in the 60s and 70s is a guy named Shane Rimmer. And he's a very recognizable voiceover artist as well. He's like a bunch of voices on like the, the Thunderbirds, Marionette, you know, Super Marionation uh, series or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, he's like, all of these guys are like, they're like a mission control guy in 2001, whatever. Uh, Shane Rimmer wrote a book and he mentions mm-hmm. he's, he plays one of the CIA guys. He's got this kind of you know, he's like a like the submarine captain in The Spy Who Loved Me and stuff. You know, like, James, how are we going to get out of this kind of guy? I, he says in this book, like, I got on set and they're just all of these like Goomba guys in bags of money. And there's like, you know, I just realized that this was just not a legit enterprise. And I think it very much wasn't. And like, I don't really, my command of the finances of vintage organized crime isn't particularly strong, uh, you know, probably for good reason. But I don't really get what the business model is where you throw money away. But like, that's essentially what they were doing. They're money laundering by making this picture. So that's the really is literally the only reason that it exists. Oh it's, it's very much a producer is auteur movie too, because the guy that produced it and played the lead assassin, although he is revoiced by Robert Rietti, who is the king of dubbing in the UK. And is like, is like, you know, when, when Jake programmed that John Houston season a few years ago, one, you know, Houston had many wilderness years and he spent a lot of time in the UK. There's a couple of those movies where you can hear this guy, Robert Rietti's voice. It's very distinct playing characters back to back, like talking against each other or whatever. He is, I mean, I think mm. it, his most spectacular jobs are he was the Japanese chief of intelligence in the Japanese Bond movie. What is it called? You Only Live Twice. You know, he has uh-huh. this really mellifluous voice, but he's also, he's the Filipino houseboy's voice in Reflections in a Golden Eye, which is, if you've seen that movie, it's like unforgettable, you know, the look at Peacock, yeah. you know, like, like there's that great scene that he has with Julie Harris and it's entirely basically Anglo-Italian voiceover artist, like revoicing this guy. He revoices the producer of this movie who plays the lead assassin in it. But this guy's name, or I guess he had a couple of names. He was Frank Avianca. He actually had a couple of doo-wop hits in the late 50s as Frankie Sardo. They're not particularly good, but he'd had a hit called Fake Out that got him on the Winter Dance Party, which is what's the tour that Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens were on. And he took the bus with Dion and lived. And Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and and Richie Valens took the plane and died. So if things had been slightly different, we wouldn't have had we wouldn't have had the masterpiece that is uh, the human factor. So, you know, oh I don't want to God. pretend to know where the bodies are buried literally or figuratively on this movie, but it's like it <laughs> was financed by a Colombo crime family porn combine, you know? So <laughs> that that's that's what you're but but in the sort of the British Edie plan model and like I mean it's just, you know, like I said before, it's like they don't teach this in film school. Kids like learn how these things are financed. <laughs> 
so that you so you know which like you know Italian uncle to talk to. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> it is a unique provenance, if nothing else. And that's a good contemporary lesson, I guess. The movie seventy five, but contemporary lesson from roundabout then is follow the money. There you go, via Condonero. <laughs> That's right. See where it takes you. But by the same token, don't wind up like two of the the uncredited executive producers, one of whom was shot and his son was shot to death in 82, I believe, according to my research. There's a great uh, there's a great no pun intended oral history of uh, of porn. Folks, I'm just going to go over here and try and pull it off the shelf here that uh, one one of the two geniuses that did uh, uh, Please Kill Me, the great oral history of punk. Followed it. Legs McNeil followed it uh-huh. up with the other Hollywood, the uncensored older history of the punk, uh, the porn film industry, which I only got, I borrowed a copy from a friend of mine recently because I thought there'd be something about the Perinos in it. And, and boy, is there. It's it's really fascinating. So, like, have a look, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's it's your medium. You, you need to know the history behind it. <laughs> That's right. Well, I have to say that I don't think uh, I don't think anything I say is gonna is gonna come close to that for a finale. I think that might be a good place to bring this in for a landing, and that's all from the human factor. In case you, in case that all sounded like we were talking like ten different about ten different movies, kind of were. That was all from the human factor. Yeah, it's not the loneliness of the long distance runner, folks. <laughs> yeah, so that that's I guess also on criterion. And yeah, I have. I've, I'm kicking myself that we didn't do one of these before, but obviously we'll we'll have to do another one. And I also just like to do plugs at the end. So just as a reminder, I think people probably maybe already know about this uh, zine that uh, Nick Pinkerton's putting out, and that's where you'll find um, Bruce's Bedeker interview. Although of course there are excerpts here, exclusive on this podcast. But uh, you'll you'll see you'll see the bulk of it on on there. And yeah, I don't know. Anything else you want? Any final thoughts, sign-offs? You know, it's streaming discovery that we made surprisingly via the most dreary channels possible is there's a quite a good uh, Spanish drama series called Patria, P-A-T-R-I-A, that I like that was the one goal that I had coming on here. And like, if it doesn't make the cut, it doesn't make the cut. But like, I, I expected nothing. It was it was yeah. one of those things where it was sort of aggregated. We both really loved the Gamora TV series, which like the movie's dead boring and the TV series is utterly fascinating, very compelling. Like it's you can smell the cologne. I mean, it's that good. Oh, it's fantastic. But Patria is really, really good. And it's it's essentially it's it's a sort of war of the Euro moms, like a sort of blue collar mother and a, uh, a more sort of bougie mom in a town in northern Spain over the the ETA violence, the uh, the you know the, the pro Basque terrorist violence, and it's oh. it's I don't want to oversell it, but it's just I, expecting nothing. It was just like I mean, that's <laughs> kind of like my wife's in laws, like kind of going at it uh, to a certain degree. But like it, it was it was it looked <laughs> like a movie. It's not all teal and orange, and you know it's you know it's a sliding uh, timeline, but it's not chaos like the serpent. It's I, I just I really really liked it a lot, and it's it, it it explores something I find really interesting, which is like where does terrorism where the the terrorism and being a gangster like where like where the differences lie and also like uh-huh. totally by accident i i played in a garage band in the 90s and if you played in a garage band in the 90s you went to spain you toured in spain like the spanish like had an endless appetite for three chord rock and roll and so i've been all over the north of spain and i actually like i've walked by the smoldering ruins of police stations there in the early 90s because the you know the basque separatist terrorist movement kept going really late compared to like you know, whatever red brigades or you know 
or what have you, like mm-hmm. other European, mm-hmm. to some degree, communist or, uh, driven, uh, you know, communist right. aspirant nationalism movements or separatist movements or what have you. In, in any case, it's, I thought it was really good. In fact, I dare say I liked it a lot more than HBO's um, uh, My Brilliant Friend. Because it just, again, it looks like a movie and they actually shot it in real places and not against like a, a green screen mock-up of a, you know, housing block in the 50s, what have you. And like, I don't know, I just, I thought it was very cool. It's very sad. Because everything that I've been responding to positively over the course of the pandemic has been desperately sad, and I'm and I'm grateful for it. So yeah, I feel that it's my soul plug. That Nick's fanzine bombast. I I bombast. I am on fire about reading uh, Sean Williams' opinions about post ten Blake Edwards films. Like that is that is I can't yes. I can't wait to can't wait to crack the the shrink wrap on that. So there we go. All right, so we'll we'll wrap it up there, and well, Bruce, thanks again for. For coming on and we're going to have to do this again. Oh, I hope so. Anytime, Nick. Anytime. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. This episode was co-produced by John Gaudio. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>